Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jennifer Hickson. Sometimes it takes a question from a stranger, a friend, or that little voice inside to clarify things. And sometimes a simple question shakes your core. All the stories in this hour involve a question, including this first story from Beverly Elliott, who asked the universe for a sign. Beverly told this in New York City, where we partner with public radio station WNYC. Here's Beverly. It's an all-female singer-songwriter night, chicks with picks. I'm the last one up, and I sing my three songs. I think they were the only three songs that I had written at that point. And I end with my song called Yellow Dress. Now, it's a song about lost love. The chorus goes, she once had dreams, she once had confidence, she had a heart that knew what's best, and one time she felt like a movie star in her yellow dress. So I sing my song, and I get a standing ovation from one man. (laughs) In the very back of the room, thank you, sir, yes. Shortly thereafter, all the singer-songwriters are sitting around a table having drinks, and then this odd, wiry-looking, ill-fitting suit, crazy energy starts coming towards me, and he says, "Uh, you touched my heart, and I said, Oh, uh, thank you. You're the man who gave me the standing ovation. He says, yes, your song, Yellow Dress. Oh, oh, I love it. And I said, well, thank you. That's really generous. Thank you so much. No, no, you got to hear me. You were the best all night. Way better than all of them. I'm like, okay, awkward. Sorry, gals. Um, really a lot better than them? No. And, uh, and I said, thank you. That You're really, really kind. He goes, no, no, no. Really, really. Like, you have to know, I just came from Greece where they stand up for people. They smash dishes. They throw money. They throw money, really? Um, And your music was just amazing. Um, I can't believe that you don't have a yellow dress, which I forgot to say that I never actually even owned a yellow dress. That song was a fictional song, but in my real life, I never even owned a yellow dress. So he said to me, I can't believe you don't own a yellow dress. I'm going to buy you a yellow dress. And I said, "Uh, no, it's okay. He goes, no, no, I want to buy you a yellow dress. What's your size? So I scan the table of women, and I bump it down a couple. um, 12-ish. From my soul to your soul, I love you. And he leaves. (laughs) Okay. So two months later, it's February, and my single musician friends and I are trying to think up a plan to get us through Valentine's because Valentine's is loaded, and Valentine's being single is lethal. So we decide to have a singer-songwriter night, and we're gonna call it Feeling Single, Drinking Double. (laughs) 
and we invite every single unattached person we know to come out and celebrate with us. We're going to beat this thing. I've never really had very good luck with Valentine's. I never even had a boyfriend during Valentine's. Didn't ever get flowers or champagne. It just hadn't happened at that point in my life for me. I'd eaten many boxes of chocolates and watched The Notebook over and over, but <laughs> this year I've got, uh, I've got it under, underhand. So February 14th arrives, and I wake up, and my heart is sad. And I think, no, come on, I've, I've arranged this. And it's like, no, I'm single, I don't have anyone in my life, and I'm, come on, come on, Beverly. So I make a deal with Miss Universe. I say, you know, can you just give me a sign, a signal, anything, like uh, a, a cinnamon heart, a fallen flower on the ground, uh, chocolate, anything. I will recognize it, it doesn't have to be big, but just to let me know that love is in my future somewhere, and uh, I'll be grateful. So the day goes on, and nothing happens. And then that night at the gig, I take the stage, I'm the delegated MC, and I welcome everyone. Hello, you lovable, lovable, lonely losers. Just kidding, we're not alone tonight, we're all together, and that's why we're here on Valentine's. And the front door flings open, and this wild, crazy energy, whirling dervish kind of Tasmanian devil comes right up to the stage. Beautiful lady, I found you. It's him, it's the guy. And uh, he says, for you, for you, I have a gift. And he hands me an elegantly wrapped box, rectangular box with a big bow on top. For you, for your song. Open it, yells a heckler. It's Valentine's. So I take the lid off the box and I pull back the tissue paper and inside is this beautiful sequined golden gown. It's a dress, a yellow dress. It's to the floor, it's backless, strapless, really low cut in the front, big slit up the side, <laughs> two sizes too small. It's a movie star dress. It's like Ginger from Gilligan's Island. Do you like it? Do you like your dress? Never in my life had I considered wearing a dress like that, had I seen this body in that kind of a dress. Put it on, yells the heckler. It's Valentine's. So I introduce the first act, and I take the dress backstage, and then I come out to find the guy, because I want to find out what he wants in exchange. He's sitting at a table, and he's reading a menu. So I say, that was an incredibly generous gift you've just given me. It's, it was a beautiful, beautiful dress. And thank you so much. And he says, you're welcome. It's for you. <laughs> so I try to initiate more conversation, but uh, he doesn't bite. He tells me his name, doesn't give me his card, doesn't ask me on a date, doesn't want my number, doesn't want to sleep with me, nothing. He just wanted me to have a yellow dress. A yellow dress that I have yet to squeeze myself into. <laughs> but every time I look at it, I feel beautiful. That was Beverly Elliott. Besides singing and songwriting, Beverly is also an actor and a mom. You're listening to the song that inspired the story right now, Yellow dress. She turned 34 years old today. This year's not been her best. 
She's been busy wiping tears away Memories of her yellow dress She shakes her head in disbelief The things she's done to stay alive Could there be some explanation Our next story is from a man in Detroit. His question comes via telephone. Here's Lee Thomas. I'm standing in line at the grocery store, and I'm there to get the essentials. You know, Pop-Tarts, olives, (laughs) toilet paper. I'm a dude. And so I feel this guy staring at me intensely. I can feel like he's burning a hole in the side of my head. It's intense. You know, he's looking at me so hard, it's like he smells something terrible. He's just squint face looking at me, and I can just feel it. Now, usually, that's a problem. Someone's staring at you. You give a mean face. You know the face you use when you're walking down the street here in the city or any city, and you want to be left alone. You give them that mean face, and they stop looking hopefully. But uh, this time, I decided to do something different. Because the truth is, is I'm not a mean dude. Uh, I'm kind of the kind of guy who kind of always has fun. When I was little, I like to sing song, kind of do a little dance, do a little jig, just smile to make people smile. And people would stare at me. So I usually say it it's because I'm devastatingly handsome. I call myself the spotted Denzel Washington. What's up, girls? But the truth is I have a disease called vitiligo. It's 2% of the world population has it. It's not life-threatening. It's not contagious. But it, it does get you a lot of attention. It gets you a lot of stares. So. Today, instead of giving a mean face, I decided to do something different. I just let him stare. And man, did the guy stare. I'm putting my stuff on the conveyor. I'm checking out. He's checking out on the other aisle, and he's looking, and I'm letting him look. And I think he doesn't know that I'm letting him look, but he's looking, he's looking. And we both check out at the same time. We head towards the exit, and he's still looking. And so we get to the door to leave, and we actually make eye contact face-to-face, and I just decide I got to break this, and I look right at him, and I say, hey, buddy, what's up? (laughs) And he just, whoa, whoa, hi. And I think at that point, he realized that he was a grown man staring at another grown man, which, you know, is usually a problem. So I wanted to break the ice a little bit and not make their tension, and I I said, "Um, it's a disease called vitiligo, man. It's, it's not life-threatening. It's not contagious. It, it's just kind of cosmetic, and it just looks very different. I, I get a lot of attention. And, and the guy actually asked me a question. So I answer his question, and we talk a little bit, and he asked me another question. So I end up talking to that guy in the grocery store for like a, a good five minutes, and it, it was good. And at the end of our conversation, he says to me, If you didn't have vitiligo, it's vitiligo, but, you know, he was trying. If you didn't have vitiligo, 
you'd look just like that guy on TV. And I laugh at him, I laugh it off. I go, oh yeah, yeah, I get that all the time, buddy. And I go to my car and I, I just sit there and kind of stare out the window because the truth is, is in the city I live in of Detroit, I am that guy on TV. <laughs> I uh, am the anchor of a morning show. I am a reporter for a local station. And I had been covering my vitiligo, have been and still do cover my vitiligo with makeup when I'm on TV. And most people never even notice. So for him, I am that guy. Now, wearing makeup on TV is not a big deal. This is New York. You guys know this. If you're on TV, you got to cover blemish. You, you got to make it, the shine go away. Makeup is not a big deal on television. But not only am I on television, I'm an entertainment reporter. So I interview, I'm in, a, I'm in a cosmetic job in a superficial industry, and I interview the most beautiful people in the world. <laughs> right? So I cover my face with makeup because I don't want to lose my job. I think if they know what I actually look like, then it might kind of be over. So I just do what everybody else on TV does, cover it up, and keep it moving. And that goes pretty well. I cover everything except my hands. So vitiligo is a pigment disorder. You just lose your color. For African Americans, it's very drastic. You look like you have white spots all over your body, but the hands completely go away. Now, I tried to cover my hands with makeup, and uh, it's brown makeup. Follow me here. You have brown makeup on, and you touch any part of your body during the day, you're going to have a brown spot. You shake somebody's hand, they're going to walk away with brown on their hand. And you're like, I, this is my mom's fault. I'd rather people think that I have a disease than dirty. <laughs> because my mom, you know, bless her heart, my mom would always say, we may not have a lot, but at least we're clean down to the underwear. <laughs> Thanks, mama. So I cover with makeup, and it worked. I had a good career, many years. One day, this lady calls me. She says her son has vitiligo. People with vitiligo notice the hands, and they call or write a letter and reach out, and that's cool. She said her son wanted to talk to me, and I said, okay, have him call me after the newscast tomorrow, and he did. He's a 14-year-old kid. He's had vitiligo for a while. He had straight A's. The kid was into karate. He seemed like he had his head on straight. And I talked to the kid for like 20 or 30 minutes, and we go back and forth with vitiligo stories, and we talk about how to deal with the stairs and all kinds of war stories. It was a good conversation. And then he says, Mr. Thomas, I have to ask you a question. Now, anytime someone announces a question, you know it's something. So I go, okay. He goes, would you show your face on TV without makeup on? And I was like, yeah, okay. Because my boss had been asking me to do that for like two or three years, I'm a news director. And I wasn't going to do it. I was telling her, let me think about it. Because you can't tell your boss no. That's just no, something you can't do. So I tell her, let me think about it. Because I know I would just end up seeing, watch the black man turning white tonight at five. Dun, 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 dun. A promo that's going to run forever. And I just wasn't ready for that. So 
This kid asking me the same question was different than my boss, so I said to him, why? And he says, if you show people what you look like, maybe they'll treat me differently. Wow. The kid blew my blinders off. You know those blinders that you wear every day? You get up, you make your breakfast, you get your coffee, you go to work, you hit the train, you hit your car, however you get there, you do your job, you go to the grocery store, you go home, you do everything you have to do to make sure your family's good, to make sure your bills are paid, there's a roof over your head. Those blinders that keep you straight. He blew my blinders off and I saw other people. So I said, sure, kid. I'll do that for you. Then this kid says, good, because there's an eight-year-old who lives in my neighborhood who wears a ski mask to go outside and play. And if you show people what you look like, the people around him tease him a lot. And maybe they'll treat him differently. Wow. This 14-year-old smart kid was actually calling me for an eight-year-old. And I'm a grown-ass man hiding behind makeup. So I told the kid, sure, of course. You're going to have to wait till the next ratings book, because I know my boss, and she's going to want to make sure we get the biggest bang for the buck. <laughs> but, uh, but I'll do the story. And I was afraid. I remember the walk down the hallway to go into the studio to do that report. I work on a morning show, and most of my coworkers at that point had never seen my face without makeup. Some of them couldn't look me in the eye, see me coming down the hall, they'd dart back in the newsroom. I understand. I sat on the set, I felt vulnerable, I was afraid, but I did it. And the response was immediate. It was overwhelmingly positive. I got hugs from my coworkers. My station got the biggest response from any story correspondent, snail mail, email that we had gotten all year. It was not what I expected. So, I didn't know what to do with the attention, so I decided to turn the attention back to the initial people who got me to tell the story. So I started a support group for people with vidligo, just a local Detroit support group, but that support group sprouted more around the country and support groups around the world. Now we have a World Vidligo Day once a year, and we've had it for the past few years. And we do a lot of things at this World Vidligo Day, but most of all, we stare at each other <laughs> and compare spots. <laughs> and uh, the first year, this little girl was looking me over, and she said that one of my spots looked like a unicorn. Thanks. That was Lee Thomas. 
Lee's been reporting the news in Detroit for almost 20 years and has been in the news business for even longer. He has a few Emmys under his belt, in fact. To see a picture of Lee putting on his makeup or to learn more about World Vitiligo Day, visit themoth.org, where you can also share this story. When we return, we replay a moth classic called My First Day with the Yankees. Side note, you don't have to be a Yankees fan to enjoy the story. Actually, you don't even have to like baseball. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. In this hour about questions, Matt McGough may win the prize for being the most persistent. When Matt showed up at a story slam in New York City in 2003 and told this story, the room erupted in a way I really hadn't seen before. Here's Matt McGough live at the Moth. I grew up a, uh, a huge fan of, of the New York Yankees, which when I was very small involved going to games, maybe once a year with my, my father and my little brother, watching uh, Reggie Jackson, then a little bit older watching uh, Dave Winfield. And then when I kind of came into my teens, uh, Don Mattingly, who was you know, my absolute favorite player. And as I, you know, I went to high school in New York, and it was kind of a turning point the first time that I went to Yankee game by myself and I started going to Yankee games by myself and it was at one of these games in the fall of 1991 that I went up to the stadium and bought a ticket to the bleachers and went and sat in the bleachers and was watching um, the game and noticed for the first time something that I'd, I'd been to the stadium so many times before but I'd never seen uh, this kid in right field wearing a Yankee uniform who was a bat boy playing catch with the right fielder, and I'd never noticed the bat boy before, and this kid could not play catch for his, his life. He was throwing the ball over Jesse Barfield's head, the right fielder, and he was one-hopping him, and I was like, you know, I, I'm not a great athlete, but I can play catch at least, at least as well as this kid can, and I don't understand why he has, you know, that job, and, and I couldn't, and so I went home that night, and I tore a page out of the program that listed all the different, you know, Yankee executives, and I wrote a handwritten letter to everyone from Steinbrenner on down to Stunt Merrill, who was the manager at that point, and basically said, you know, my name is Matt, and I'm 16 years old, and I'm a huge fan of the Yankees, and, you know, I don't know if you can apply for this bat boy position, but if you can, I really would like an application, and I'm so excited to hear from you that if I don't hear from you soon, I'm going to follow up with, with a phone call, so... <laughs> Sent these off and about two weeks went by and after you know two weeks I hadn't heard anything and so I picked up the phone and the <laughs> Yankee switchboard number was on the same list of executives and secretary answered the phone, hello New York Yankees, and I said hi this is Matt McGough and I sent a letter in a couple weeks ago about applying for a bat boy position and nobody got back to me. <laughs> so she's like okay well I'll take your name down and I'll have somebody get back to you and she took, took my number down and another week goes by and I don't hear anything so... I pick up the phone again and I call and this woman answers the phone, hello, New York Yankees. And I say, hi, this is Matt. You know, I sent some letters in about the bat boy position and I called last week and somebody was supposed to call me back. But, you know, I thought it was kind of rude that, that they hadn't. <laughs> and so she, you know, she laughed and she asked me, how old are you? And I said, 16. And she laughed some more and I didn't really understand what she was laughing at. But, you know, she 
took down my name again. She said, you know, I'll, I'll make sure that somebody gets back to you. So, you know, a few days later, sure enough, in the mail, um, a letter arrived on, on Yankee letterhead, official letterhead, and it invited me to come up to the stadium for an interview with Nick Priori, who's the clubhouse manager. So I put my jacket and, and tie on, and I don't even think I told any of my friends about this because it was way, way too weird to explain. <laughs> so I went up, took the four train up to the stadium and walked into the, you know, walked around the stadium. And this is October, so they weren't playing in the World Series in October back in 91. So it was very, very quiet. And I walked around the stadium and walked into the Yankee lobby, and there was a security guard there. and I introduce myself and I say I'm here for the Bat Boy interview and he picks up the telephone and he's like, you know, Nick, some kids here to see you and, you know, oh, okay. So he says, you know, have a seat. So I sit down in, in the pinstripe lobby and I'm, you know, passing about 10 minutes waiting for this guy Nick to come up for the first job interview of my life, for the first job of my life. And I'm, you know, trying to think of the questions that he might ask me. And so I'm ready to tell him what my favorite subject is in school. and tell him, you know, why I think the Yankees need a big bat behind Mattingly, you know, to win the pennant next year and what, you know, Mickey Mantle's batting average was in 1956 and like all these different questions. So, you know, I'm kind of passing the time and these double doors burst open and this guy walks in, obviously Nick, but he doesn't introduce himself. He's, you know, could be anywhere from 40 to 80 years of age. <laughs> he has this greased back hair and he has a stogie between the two teeth left in his mouth and a chaw of tobacco possibly also and Yankee shorts and white athletic socks pulled up to his knees and he has shoe polish, uh, like black sneakers that are obviously shoe polished and he just looks at me and says, are your parents gonna mind you taking the train home late at night? So I say, you know, I take the train to school every day, I think, I think it'll be fine and he just kind of looks at me and Finally, I said, no, I don't think my parents will mind me taking the train home late at night. And he says, we'll come back opening day. So that was October. You know, I go home. I think I have the job. I'm not, not really sure. And, you know, six months later, opening day, 1993, I show up at 9 a.m. I put on my jacket and tie. I walk back to the stadium. I go back downstairs, you know, through these tunnels and come to this, you know, big steel door that says Yankee Clubhouse on. And I walk inside and it's complete pandemonium and you know there's uh, these ball players that I'd only seen before on TV or across rows and rows of stadium seats and like they're there in the flesh in front of me and Don Mattingly is over you know on the right and I had a poster of Don Mattingly above my bed you know for my whole life and he's standing right over there and Jimmy Key the ace of the pitching staff is over there and and all these guys and you know opening day at Yankee Stadium is not just a sports event it's a news event it's the beginning of spring and in New York and Mayor Dinkins is there with his entourage and like it's Mayor Dinkins and Don Mattingly, you know, it's so uh, I'm walking around and just kind of lost and I figure, you know, I better go find find Nick. So I walk up to Nick and I say, Nick, what do you, you know, what do you, I'm Matt, we met a couple months ago, what do you, what do you want me to do? It's my first day of work. So he says, stay that F out of my way. So I kind of like shrink back and throw my backpack over on the side and I'm just kind of wandering around in a daze and I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Don Mattingly and he sticks his hand out and he says how's it going I'm Don Mattingly are you going to be working with us this year <laughs> which you know even at that moment I'd never really thought about the experience in those terms and he could have said so many other things that wouldn't have been as cool as that like he could have said you know are you who are you or are you the new bat boy or are you going to be working for us this year but he said you know I'm Don Mattingly are you going to be working with us this year so 
I said, I know who you are, Mr. Mattingly. I'm Matt, I'm the new bat boy. And he's like, great to meet you, Matt. I have a very big, very big job to ask of you. I've just unpacked all my bats from spring training, and I don't know if it was the altitude of the flight up from Florida or the humidity down there or what, but the game starts in about two hours, and I need you to find me a bat stretcher. So I say, okay. So I go, I go and find Nick, and I go, you know, Nick is, is busy. Probably half a dozen ball players are like bothering him for double A batteries or, you know, my hat sizes, my hat's too small or this or that. And I go up and I'm like, Nick, I need a bat stretcher for Don Mattingly. And he lets loose with a stream of expletives that fell on, I swear, completely virgin ears. Like I never, never heard that type of language in the movies before or anywhere, let alone directed at me. So I kind of like rock back on my heels and go and find somebody I can trust, like Nick's assistant, Rob, and I ask him, you know, I need a bachelor for Don Mattingly, and Nick told me to go F myself, and I don't, I don't know what to do, so he was like, chill out. You know, I saw Danny Tartable using one in his locker, so Danny Tartable's the, you know, power-hitting right fielder. I go to his locker, and I'm, he's getting dressed in his uniform, and I stand off on the side, and he says, you know, how's it going? And I'm like, fine, I'm mad, I'm the new bat boy, and I need a bat stretcher for Don Mattingly, and I heard you were just using one. So he's like, well, I was using one, but I left it in the manager's office. You should probably go check in there. <laughs> so I say, thanks, and he says, see you around. And I go into the manager's office and walk in, and Buck Showalter, the manager, is having a press conference with probably like eight or 10 reporters. And I stand off on the side, and I'm kind of, you know, the conversation comes to a standstill basically because there's a 16-year-old kid there in his Easter blazer and jacket <laughs> and standing in the manager's office at Yankee Stadium two hours before first pitch on opening day looking very lost and very anxious. And Showalter turns to me and he's like, can I help you? And I say, I, I'm mad, I'm the new bat. I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I need a bat stretcher for Don Mattingly and Danny Tartable says that he left it in here, so. Showalter looks down like beneath his desk and you know, he's like, well, you know, do you need a right-handed one or a left-handed one? <laughs> so this is the first moment all day that I actually, you know, this is the first question that I had that I could answer with complete confidence because you couldn't have grown up in New York at that time, you know, without knowing that Mattingly was the best left-handed hitter in baseball. So I say, I need a left-handed bass stretcher. <laughs> so he's like, well, I think we maybe have a right-handed one around here, but probably not a left-handed one. And like, you should try it out at the Red Sox clubhouse and see if they have one. So I said, okay, thanks. You know, I'm sorry to interrupt. I go, uh, at, at this point, I'm like sprinting down the hallways, like the tunnels beneath the stands, the first base stands at the stadium. And I run into the Red Sox clubhouse and find their equipment manager and give him like the whole story. I'm at him. The new bat boy for the Yankees and Danny Tartable left his right-handed bat stretcher in, in Buck Schulter's office and he left-handed one. And, and like the game's about to start. And he's like, calm down. Like, you know, we don't have one, but we need one. Like, here's 20 bucks. Go up to the sporting goods store on 161st Street and River Avenue and buy two. Like, buy a left-handed one for Mattingly and a right-handed one for us, and then bring me back the change. So he gives me the 20, I put it in my pocket, I run upstairs. You know, at this point, it's like an hour before opening day. The fans are coming down, like 50,000 fans are coming down from, you know, the subway in the opposite direction that I'm walking. I'm the only person in the world who knows that, you know, if I don't come through on this mission, Madeline is gonna go up there against Roger Clemens and the Red Sox on opening day at Yankee Stadium with a toothpick in his hand, basically. <laughs> so I'm like fighting against the crowd and feeling so much weight on my shoulders and I make my way, you know, and I'm about to cross the threshold of Stan's sporting goods when it dawns on me, like I've played 
a lot of baseball in my life, and I've, you know, been a big fan for a while, and like, I don't even know what a bat stretcher looks like. like and it, this moment that I'm like walking into the store, it dawns on me for the first, first time, like, is, uh, is this a joke? Like, could this possibly, <laughs> could this possibly be a joke? And if it, you know, but I've had so much fear because like, if it is a joke and I go back and I tell Don Mattingly, you know, I'm too smart to fall for your, you know, your, your BS bat stretcher story. <laughs> and I'm wrong, I'm gonna be back in the bleachers like before my first game, you know, and, and lose my dream job. So, you know, I take three laps around the stadium kind of convincing myself, like it's gotta be a joke, like it's gotta be, it's gotta be a joke. And I, you know, I walk back, back in, I go down the stairs, I walk into the clubhouse, Mattingly winks at me from across the clubhouse, a couple of other ball players laugh. Mattingly goes three for five that day, Yankees win, it was my first day in pinstripes. And, uh, you know, I didn't learn until later on that I was the first kid in anyone's memory to have gotten the job without having a connection, without, you know, somebody knowing somebody or my dad knowing somebody or, or whatever, which was, you know, a lesson, a lesson in itself. And, you know, as intensely naive my pursuit of that job was, you know, I was probably as naively intense in chasing the bat stretcher. But, you know, the lesson in the story is, you know, when there's with a great deal of persistence and a little bit of common sense, even if the thing you're chasing may not exist, you can sometimes will it into being. Thank you. That was Matt McGough. He's an author, journalist, and screenwriter. Two years after telling this story for The Moth, he published his memoir, Bat Boy, Coming of Age with the New York Yankees. That book became the basis of a primetime CBS series called Clubhouse, and later Matt was hired as a legal consultant and staff writer for NBC's Law & Order. He's now turned to journalism, and his most recent book is a true crime account called The Lazarus File. And it all started with a question, can I be a bat boy? To see a picture of Matt as a bat boy, visit themoth.org, where you can also share this story. When we return, a server is interrogated while taking a dinner order, and a mother asks for what she desperately needs. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. You're listening to The Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jennifer Hickson. We're talking about questions, both asking and answering. Riley Horan told this story for us at a show in Boston, presented by public radio station WBUR. Here's Riley Horan, live at The Moth. I am working in a restaurant on an island, uh, not too far from here actually, Nantucket Island. It is the dead of the summer, it's the peak dinner hour, and I have been assigned the section they refer to as the backyard barbecue. The backyard barbecue is a patio section behind the restaurant where they just throw all the families to have like little kids with no shoes and no clothes, just like throw rice everywhere and leave. We don't even serve barbecue food at this restaurant. We call it the backyard barbecue in honor of the servers who go out there and then come back at the end of the night like burnt and charred to a crisp. <laughs> so I'm making my way outside and I push open the screen door 
to head out there. And I'm reminded of this ritual I used to have um, the first time I worked in this restaurant about four summers earlier. Um, it was the summer I got my heart broken for the first time. So it was the first time I was confronting my own sexuality by myself since I ever really started thinking about it. And if you're not familiar with restaurant jargon, uh, when a server is coming in and out of a kitchen door, they call coming out so that the folks on the other side don't get trampled. So imagine me coming to terms with being gay for the first time really ever in the silent depths of my own heart, being forced to scream coming out roughly 60 times a day as I come in and out of the kitchen door. So I push my way through this door and I, and I approach this, this family, this table, and I'm wearing my server's t-shirt and khaki shorts and calf socks and actually these leather bucks that I'm wearing right now. That is to say I looked like a Boy Scout but in like a great way. And I make my way down the table, I'm taking everybody's dinner order, and I get down to this final six-year-old kid, and he's wearing a policeman's uniform. And I ask him what he wants for dinner, and he flashes me his badge and says that he wants an elephant quesadilla, which is weirdly not on the menu, so his mother clarifies, he actually means a cheese quesadilla. And because he's a little kid, I have to ask him, do you want black beans or corn? And he says, are you a boy or a girl? And the whole table like erupts into emergency protocol. Oh my God, we're so sorry. He'll eat in the car, don't listen to him. They have like a burlap sack over them, they're like sending him into the ocean. And like the spirit of this question is, hey, I noticed you. Do you mind telling me a little bit more about who you are? And this is definitely not the first time I have fielded a question like this, nor is it the worst way it's been phrased or hurled at me. So I say, well, what do you think? And he says, well, I'm not sure because of your socks and your legs. <laughs> His parents are in that sort of shame paralysis where you can't move, but you also just want to die. And all of a sudden, I'm like tunneling through my shoes back in time, back through like every piece of clothing I've ever worn, like a literal tour of my closet. I'm five years old again, and I'm dressed as Mary, in our Christmas pageant. Mary, the mother of Jesus, the coveted role of all the girls in my class, the little like epitome of womanhood. And I'm making my way down the aisle and I have this Jesus baby doll in my hand. And I'm just smashing him against every pew on my way down the aisle. <laughs> and my mom like ushers me over and is like, Riley, my dear, why are you so angry? And I said, because I wanted to be Joseph. <laughs> like, Fast forward through 15 years of Halloween costumes handcrafted by my beloved mother, the mailman, the headless horseman, the two-headed man. Then there's like this litany of gender non-conforming inanimate objects like pizza slice, Lego. <laughs> Jump to my middle school play of Fiddler on the Roof where my sister is starring as the dancing daughter and I'm co-starring as the military general. Jump to school picture day, where me and my brothers are wearing a tie and a blazer. Jump to these cargo shorts that had these huge pockets so that when I walked in the woods, I could collect as many rocks as I could possibly hold so I could sort them in my room later. Fast forwarding all the way to that summer of first heartbreak, where I'm up in my bedroom 
uh, folding my clothes, this like men's blue Oxford shirt that I always wore to like occasions that mattered so I could like dress up. And I'm like folding it and my father walks in and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, my love, you did everything you could have to have kept her. The way he would have said it to any of his four children, because my goodness, no matter who you are or what your laundry looks like as you're folding it, a broken heart is a broken heart. Fast forwarding all the way to just the week before this kid asked me this question, I'm at a ferry dock right by the restaurant and this woman accidentally directs a question towards me about lifeboats because I happen to be wearing one of my sensible fleece vests at the very dock, so she thinks I can save her. <laughs> and I'm starting to think like, God, if this kid had been around, like this tiny little police officer had been around like 20 years ago to ask me this question, it probably would have been sort of clarifying or freeing or something, but we don't, we don't always get that. The questions don't always come at the right time. And I, honestly, I'm, I'm not even sure if they had come at the right time, if I would have even been ready to answer them. And all of a sudden, I'm sort of like re-emerging back through my shoes, back at this dinner table, and his parents are looking at me, and this kid is looking at me. He has his police baton, and he sort of like taps his ear. <laughs> and I decide I'm not going to come out to him or his parents, because we've kind of like all already been through enough tonight. And also, he is still facing this monumental decision of black beans or corn. <laughs> but what I do decide to say to him is, I identify as a woman, but I really like dressing like a tomboy because it makes me feel more like myself. And he says, oh, like a costume. And I say, yeah, like a uniform. That was Riley Haran. Riley has many talents. Her main gig right now is as a scenic carpenter with the Blue Man Group. But she's also a crew lead, a stage and road manager, a teaching artist, and a writer. She also does something called movement improvisation. Do you have a story to tell us? Have you ever been asked a question that stopped you cold or maybe made you ponder something you hadn't even considered? You can pitch us your story by recording it right on our site or call 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. The best pitches are developed for moth shows all over the world. Our final story is from Camille Woods. A brief caution about this one, Camille's son was a passenger in a tragic car accident. She told this in Ann Arbor, where we partner with Michigan Public Radio. Here's Camille. So I never realized that the most important promise ever kept to me would be from a stranger that I had met and spoken to for about 20 minutes. Uh, it was the day after I'd driven back from Alabama when I had found out that I had lost my son, and we went to the funeral home to start all the proceedings, which is really an interesting and morbid, clearly, uh, process. Um, her name was Judy, and she was about, like, yay big, and she had blonde hair, and I think she was maybe 35, and she had blue eyes, and she was the sweetest thing, and she handed me this book with all these caskets in it and a book with urns and 
like all this shit that I had no idea about, except that I was supposed to choose something and create something out of the loss of like the best thing that had ever happened in my life. So we sat speaking and I had been, it had been uh, about mm, less than 24 hours since the loss. I had to drive back, my brother had to fly and pick me up and drive, drive me back from Alabama back to Michigan. Um, and I hadn't seen him. And I wanted to know where he was. I just wanted to be with my son. And I remember in my head thinking, I don't give a crap about any of these books. I don't give a crap about the funeral. I don't give a crap about this place. It was, you know, this very quiet and pristine and almost sterile kind of uh, building. It was just a building I knew existed next to Red Lobster on Carpenter Road. It happened to be a funeral home, and that's where we ended up. And I couldn't stop crying, and I kept saying, when can I see him? When can I see him? When will he be here? We had seen him on a video screen um, earlier that day, because I live in Wayne County, and in Wayne County, you're not allowed to see a body up close. So they sit you in a room uh, with Kleenex and a TV screen, and then your son comes up on the screen, swaddled. He looked like he was sleeping and uh, it wasn't nearly as traumatic. Fuck it, yes, it was very traumatic. It was very traumatic. So I just wanted to be with him. So Judy, I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she said, well, let me talk to somebody. And she left the room, and she came back a moment later, and I was saying the same thing, when can I see him? I want to see him. And she said, well, they're gonna bring him here tomorrow. And I said, so when can I see him? Well, I'm not sure. I said, when can I see him? She said, give me another second. And she walked out of the room. And I'm sitting there with my brother and I'm sitting there with my ex-husband. And she comes back and I said again, when can I see my son? I don't wanna see him in the casket. I don't wanna see him when you've done things to him. I want to see him now. And she looks at me and she says, tomorrow around two o'clock, I promise, he will be brought here and I will find a way for you to see him. I promise. And so I, I heard her and I'm a pretty easygoing person and even in that moment, I agreed to believe her. And I went home and you know, my house was full of people because it's gonna be right, somebody died. So we're going through photos, it's the next day, we're going through photos, we're trying to figure out, oh, what's the funeral gonna look like? I didn't give a crap, you know, there's people all over the place floating around, and my phone rang, and it was 2.05, actually, 2.05. And it was Judy, and she said, he's here. You have to come now, because we have to get him ready, which I didn't know what the hell that meant, and I said, okay, I will be right there. Well, you know, we gathered up. My sister was there, my, uh, my brother had gone, my stepson, my you know, stepfather, everybody got in the car. I called the ex-husband who said, I can't go, because he wasn't strong enough. So we went, we went. And we walked down the stairs with Judy leading the way, and she held my hand. She held my hand, I won't forget that. She held my hand. We came down the stairs, and across the room was this big, bag because my son was six foot five and he weighed about 400 pounds and my knees buckled 
And my sister kind of held me up. And we walked across the room. And I realized that the only thing out that I could see was my son's left arm. And I said, where is the rest of him? And she said, and this is something you don't learn until you lose someone, I'm sorry, I can't show you the rest of him. I said, why not? She said, well, they do an autopsy and we put him back together. I can't show him to you. But as awful as it sounds, the 20 minutes that I got to hold the chubbiest hand that I'd ever held in my life and got to rub the most beautiful arm that I had ever had on the earth meant everything to me, even though I couldn't see the rest of him. It was the only time that I was able to see the real him and hold who he really was. And so God bless Judy for making the most awful, beautiful, tragic promise kept in my life. That was Camille Woods. Her son's name was Marcus McIntosh, but everybody called him Big Mac. He was known for being kind and would always say, I got you. Camille is a school social worker in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and has started a kindness program in her son's name. All year long, the kids ponder how Big Mac would have done things and how they can find ways to be kind to each other. To see some pictures of Marcus and his mom, and to see one of the school's I Got You t-shirts, visit themoth.org. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time, and that's the story from the Moth. Your host for this hour was Jennifer Hickson. Jennifer also directed the stories in the show along with Leah Tao. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Emily Couch. Lee Thomas's story was recorded at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts in New York City. Most stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Beverly Elliott, Krung Bin, Duke Levine, and Todd Sikafus. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.